If you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, there's an outline in your bulletin, and there's there are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one if you'd like, now or later. And the printed messages are all online, and uh, the audio messages will be up online shortly, and you can access them there as well. I'm going to overlap a couple of verses that we covered last week lightly and cover them again from a little different perspective. So starting at verse 14, we're picking up right after the miracle of the, the loaves and the fish that Jesus multiplied to feed 15, 20,000 people. Verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They're referring there to Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses predicted that God would raise up a prophet like himself for the people. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Uh, Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was to the land to which they were going. Many people come to Christ in the hopes that he can make them happy. They're going through some kind of problem, a personal problem. They hear that Jesus can help with that problem. And uh, so they they trust him in the, the hopes that they're going to gain the peace and the joy that they lack. Or maybe they're in an unhappy marriage and they've heard that Jesus can help unhappy marriages or their kids are rebelling and They've heard stories of Jesus working in those situations, and so they give it a try, hoping that he will help them. And whatever the need may be, and those are just a few examples of many, the the bottom line is they're coming to Jesus, hoping that he'll make them happy. But after they come to Christ, they find out that their problems get worse and not better. Uh... Things aren't exactly like the salesman, I mean the evangelist, told them. You know, they they heard it was all going to be good. You've seen the little diagram. Here's your life without Christ. It's all jumbled up. Here's your life with Christ. All of it's nice and orderly and neat looking. You know, the little circle there in the four spiritual law booklet. And they thought, that's what I need, boy. And instead, their life's even more jumbled up. And they're trying to figure out what happened. It's kind of like... Maybe you've signed up for something and it was a bait and switch, you know. You thought you were signing up for this and you got that. And if you'd only known in advance what you were signing up for, you might not have done it. Now, as I've often said, 
The crucial question to answer in all of life is the one that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, but who do you say that I am? That is the crucial question. Who do you say that I am? Because if Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, if Jesus is who the scriptures show him to be, then we must follow him no matter what happens to us. We may end up in prison. We have brothers and sisters, as I speak, in prison around the world suffering for their faith. We may end up even being martyred. That happens. And the Bible is very clear that that will happen. But even if we are tortured and killed for the sake of Christ, if He is the eternal God in human flesh, then we got to follow Him. In fact, the Apostle Paul gave you this promise. Here's a promise to put in your promise box, okay? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, we've been pretty exempt from that in America but it may be coming. And the point is, again, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if Jesus is, as John proclaims him, the Christ, the Son of God, then even if you're persecuted, even if things don't go quite as smoothly as you had hoped, you have to follow Jesus because he's the truth. So, John wrote his gospel, as we've seen many times now, but just to refresh it again, John 20, 31, John said, I've written these signs, there were many others I could have picked, miracles Jesus did, but these I've written so that you, make that very personal, each one of you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so John doesn't want you just to believe I believe in every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. That's all wonderful, but that's not what you're supposed to believe. You are supposed to believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you will have life, that means eternal life, in His name. And so it's important that we believe in Jesus for the right reasons. We're going to explore that more next time as well. It's important that we grow to know Jesus as he is, as he's revealed to us in the Bible, and not as we might wish him to be. Now John, along with Matthew and Mark that also record this miracle, all three of them follow the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. John gives a very compressed version of the story. Uh, for example, John doesn't tell us that the or that Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. And that word compelled is strong. I think probably they wanted to stay <clears throat> with all the excitement on the shore there and the miracle and the response of the crowd, as we'll see. And Jesus forces them and says, get in the boat and put out to sea. John just says they got in the boat. He doesn't tell us the compelling factor. Uh, John doesn't tell us that Jesus sent the multitude away. Again, implying deliberate, go away, people. 
kind of thing on Jesus' part. Uh, John tells us Jesus went on the mountain, but he doesn't tell us what he was doing there. And the other Gospels say he was up there praying. Uh, John doesn't tell us what Mark tells us, that while he was on the mountain, Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars, and uh, that even as he was walking on the water, that he intended to pass them by. Interesting comment in Mark, which I can't comment on here. Uh, John doesn't say that the disciples, when they saw him, thought that they were seeing a ghost. But he does say they were frightened, as I imagine you would be out in the night on a storm, uh, rowing and seeing somebody walking to you on the water. Uh, John doesn't tell us what only Matthew records about Peter saying, Lord, if it's you, please bid me to get out of the boat and come to you. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water for a brief while to Jesus before he got afraid. John doesn't tell us that when Jesus got in the boat, the storm was instantly stilled, um, as the other uh, Gospels do. And the most puzzling one to me, and I don't understand this one, um, Matthew tells us that uh, the disciples, in response to this miracle, when Jesus got in the boat, they worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And since John's purpose is that we would know that Jesus is the son of God, I don't know why he didn't record that uh, in his account, but it's a very brief account. And John, if you'll notice, does not offer any comment on why he puts it here. Uh, it's sandwiched between the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and what follows is a long discourse by Jesus on his being the bread of life. And so uh, you have to ask the question, well, why did John put this story in his gospel? Why does he want us to think about it? What does he want us to take away from our meditation on this story of Jesus walking on the water? Now, I think one clue that answers those questions is to go back to chapter 1 and verse 14, where John uh, makes the statement, the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh, the eternal Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it seems to me that one reason John reports this miracle is so that we too will see Jesus' glory in a greater way and put our trust in him, especially when we're going through life storms. Also, this miracle was private. Uh, no one knew, knew about it except the disciples who report it to us here as we'll see next time, the multitude saying, how'd you get over here when they come around and meet Jesus on the other side of the shore? Uh, and he doesn't tell them, I walked on the sea. <laughs> it's just private. And that means it was for the training of the 12. And it means this, if you're a follower of Jesus, the miracle is for you to help equip you, to help train you as you deal with life storms. So we're not reading too much into this miracle, I think. Sometimes, you know, preachers over-psychologize the Bible. But I don't think we're reading too much into it if we say that the disciples were very confused and <clears throat> probably very disappointed in how Jesus responded to the multitude when he sent them 
away on the boat. Uh, the crowd proclaimed Jesus to be the prophet of whom Moses spoke. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. The disciples, remember, had placed all of their hopes in this Galilean carpenter rabbi as he is the Messiah King of Israel. Jesus had sent them out on a mission. By the way, they had even given up their livelihood to follow him. He had sent them out on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. They had come back pumped and excited and told Jesus what they had seen, miracles and so on. And now it seems like it's ready to happen. The people are saying, let's make Jesus king. Isn't that what it was all about? Isn't that what they were working for? And yet, instead of capitalizing on the the mood of the crowd to see Jesus enthroned, Jesus takes the disciples and, and says, get on the boat go out to sea, he goes back, dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on the mountain all by himself. And I'm sure the disciples, as they're rowing out to the on the lake there, were going, what in the world is going on? What was he thinking? And then, to make matters worse, after Jesus tells them to get in the boat and go out on the sea, this strong wind comes up, stirs up the storm, and uh, there they are in the storm, in this, in the dark, without Jesus. Now, they had already been in one storm on this lake with Jesus. He was asleep at the time, and they aroused him, and he got up and rebuked the storm, and it instantly became calm. But this time, they're in the storm, and Jesus isn't even with them. They're out there all alone. And so I think it's reasonable to assume the disciples are a bit confused, and they're probably greatly disappointed as they're out there rowing against this storm. I mean, after all, they were trying to bring about God's kingdom. Jesus is the king. The people want to make him king. And now this. Now this. And uh, in that setting, Jesus came to them walking on the water. And I believe that he wanted to teach them that even though he wasn't the kind of Messiah king they thought that he ought to be, he still was the Messiah. And he is the king. And he is the Lord of all the universe. He created it, and he can walk on the water. And they needed to get to know Jesus as he is and not as they hoped he would be, mistakenly hoped he would be. And I think the lesson for us is this, that Jesus does not want followers who use him for their own purposes, but he wants followers who grow to know him as he is and grow to trust him as he is. Um, first of all, let's look at the negative in verses 14 and 15, that Jesus doesn't want followers who have misconceptions about who he is, who are using him for their own purposes. Again, let me read verses 14 and 15. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, the loaves and the fishes, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come to come into the world. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Moses, as you know, was the revered super leader of Israel. He had led the nation out of slavery in Egypt. 
into the wilderness. He had provided manna for them there. God, through Moses, had provided it. And if Jesus is this prophet of whom Moses had prophesied, it's only reasonable, isn't it, that he would deliver us from Rome. Because at the time that Jesus was ministering, Israel was in bondage to Roman domination. And maybe Jesus could usher in God's kingdom, give us the peace and prosperity that we want, and so they want to make Jesus a political king. The problem was they really didn't want to be confronted with their sin. They didn't want to repent of their sin. They didn't want to make Jesus their Lord. Rather, they wanted a king who would improve their living situation. They wanted a king who would make life comfy and nice. And so in short, they had these misconceptions about who Jesus is and about what he came to do. And they wanted to use Jesus for their own purposes, to give them happiness. And even the disciples, you remember, fell into this wrong way of thinking. Remember in the context of where Jesus asked them that crucial question, but who do you say that I am? Well, in that context, um, Jesus later, or right after, he followed that up by saying, I'm going to be going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to kill me, and after three days I'm going to rise again. And you remember what Peter did, good old Peter. He takes Jesus aside and straightens him out. It says that Peter took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This should never happen to you. And then Jesus rebuked Peter with some of the strongest language Jesus ever used. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not, or you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And so Peter had these wrong conceptions of who Jesus was and what the program was, the kingdom, and where he would be in the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not the way it is. Peter, his conception of Christ did not include the cross. And he didn't like the language about, if you want to be my follower, take up your own cross and follow me. you got to die to self. Now, I hope I'm not this morning describing anyone here, but maybe I am. It's a very common thing for people to come to Christ to use him for what they want out of life. And if that doesn't work out, I'm out of here. One Sunday a few years ago after a service, I had a first-time visitor, a woman, come up for prayer, she and her husband. And they had moved here from California because she had been offered a good job. She got here, took the job, and had been terminated just a few weeks into the job. I'm not sure why. And she was angry and she was bitter at God. Why would God bring us to this place and now this? And I sat with her and unsuccessfully for quite a while tried to persuade her that, you know, this trial, you have to see it as from God's loving hand and that he has your best interest at heart, but you've got to submit to him and you've got to trust him. And more than that, you even need to thank him for this trial because it's a great opportunity for you to grow in faith. 
She wouldn't hear any of it. She was angry and bitter. I later counseled with her husband alone because she left him and took off to California as an angry and bitter woman. But the, the point we need to gain from verses 14 and 15 is Jesus isn't there to be used like Aladdin's genie to make us happy and fulfill our every wish. That's not why he came. And so the second part, uh, the miracle itself, shows us that Jesus wants followers who will grow to know him and trust him for who he is. And I might add, trust him in life's storms for who he is. You know, in Isaiah chapter 55, it's a great chapter, uh, but verses 8 and 9, the Lord says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And part of growing in Christ is growing to know the ways of the Lord and how he deals with you in trials. And to submit thankfully in those trials to the Lord. And one way you can know if you're growing in Christ is, are you becoming less of a grumbler and more of a thankful person? Because, you know, I tend to grumble. It's just my natural bent. When things don't go the way I want, and, and often, it's not the major trial that are the tests for me. You know, I mean, if some major thing hits, you just go, wow, this is the Lord. i got to bow. But it's when I'm late for an appointment and there's this traffic jam or I'm behind some granny driving at 10 miles an hour and i got to get there, you know, get out of my way. And I, boy, I'm grumbling. I'm not thankful. But you see, when I'm grumbling, who's Lord? Me. Lord, if you would just do things my way, life would be so much nicer. I know what's best for me, and you don't know what's best for me, so would you please get with the program, Lord? I am Lord. I am using the Lord for my benefit, and I am not submitting to the Lord, thankfully, and saying, Lord, I don't know why this is happening to me, but you're Lord of all, and I give you thanks, and I would ask you to use this situation for your purpose in my life. So that's biblical Christianity. And as we look at this story, it brings out five ways that we can grow to know and trust Jesus for who he is in the middle of our storm. First of all, we grow to know and trust Jesus' person, his person through the trials that he puts us through. John tells us Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. The disciples get into the boat, and they start to cross the sea without him, the water. And, and then John adds what's kind of a puzzling statement in verse 17. He says, it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, not all commentators agree with me, but my understanding of the statement is, John is getting ahead of himself in the story. He's anticipating what probably most of his readers knew is coming, that Jesus would come to him, them. And I think he's emphasizing the fact that here they are, they're in the dark, they're in the storm, and Jesus isn't there. And so that's the situation. Not only was Jesus not with them, but he leaves them to struggle 
with this storm for quite a while because uh, John says they had rowed 25 or 30 stadia, which is about three, three and a half, four miles, somewhere in that range. The other Gospels report that it was in the fourth watch of the night. That would be three in the morning until six in the morning. So they've been rowing all night against these powerful waves, and uh, they were probably exhausted. They were probably at a point of wondering, should we just stop rowing and let the current blow us back to where we came from? And it's in that situation, as they are exhausted and at this point of great need, that Jesus does come walking to them on the sea. I think if you could interview John after this had happened, uh, John would have recalled the event and say, you know, it was a very awful, difficult thing to be out there in the dark, in a storm, and Jesus was not with us. But you know what? Uh, if Jesus had not sent us into that situation we would not have gotten the vision of his glory that we got when he came to us walking on the sea. And that trial was worth everything that we went through so that we could see Jesus in that fresh way and know him for who he was, who he is. And you know, trials, let's be honest, are never enjoyable at the moment. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12 that All trials are not for the moment joyful but sorrowful. And then the writer adds in verse 11, yet to those who have been trained by it, and it refers to God's discipline in trials, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The late Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a writer, wrote this. He said, as an, wrote this as an old man, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I have learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. You know, another reason that the Lord got them out of there and on the boat was to spare them from a great temptation. I could see the disciples being the cheerleaders of the crowd. When the word started murmuring through the crowd, let's make Jesus king. I could see the disciples going, that's it. That's what we're working for. Jesus for king. Jesus for king. And boy, they'd start cheering and leading the crowd on, and they would have made a huge mistake. And I'm convinced that someday when we're in heaven, we're going to look back on our lives and go, whoa, I didn't even know I was in danger of temptation there. And the Lord brought something into my life to protect me from myself. If I can use a kind of homely personal example, when I was a teenager, I had really bad acne on my face. And and, uh, that's not conducive to your dating life, okay? And uh, at the same time, like a lot of teenage boys, I really struggled a lot with lust. And I, I've looked back on that and thought, you know, that was God's gracious way to protect me from myself. Because I could have easily gotten immorally involved with young girls, and I didn't. And uh, so thank God for the trials, the storms. Sometimes they keep you from something you don't even know you're going to fall into. And uh, that's one one result. But... Through this miracle, what I'm saying is, I mean, through this 
incident of the storm and Jesus on the sea, the disciples came to know the person of Jesus in a way that they never would have if it it hadn't happened. And I think that Jesus often sends us into the storms so that when we're exhausted, we're at the end of ourselves, we're going, Lord, I don't get it. What are we doing out here? He comes in a fresh and powerful way, and we know him deeper than we did before. A second way we grow to know and trust Jesus is to trust his purpose in the trials that he puts us through. A.W. Pink makes the point that the people, the multitude, were ready to proclaim Jesus as prophet, and they were ready to proclaim Jesus as king, but they were missing something. And that is, before he is enthroned as king, he needed to be the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And the disciples didn't get that lesson until after the cross. Remember there on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room, Jesus opened their understanding to say, the Christ first must suffer and then enter into his glory. They didn't want that. They didn't get that all the way. And this miracle, I think, is one more time of Jesus reinforcing the lesson. But one of the main lessons concerning God's purpose that we all need to learn is his purpose is not about me. And it's not about my glory. His purpose is about Jesus and his glory. And he is working all things in our lives for the glory of Christ. Because one day, he's going to sum up all things in Christ. Now maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's that verse, I quote it all the time, Romans 8.28, that God's working all things together for my good. You're saying he's working all things together for his glory. How, How does that work? Here's how it works. If you read the next few verses after that, he says, His purpose is to conform you to the image of Christ. And when you're perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in heaven, it will be to the praise of his glory. And so your glory and his glory, or your good and his glory, come together. John Piper says, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And all that comes together in heaven when we are made to be totally like Jesus and it will be for our greatest happiness and his greatest glory. Um, so, uh, first of all then, we, we grow to know and trust Jesus' person in these trials. Second, we, we grow to know and trust Jesus' purpose in our trials. Thirdly, we grow to know and trust Jesus' providence in our trials, in the trials he puts us through. Here the disciples go from the mountaintop, up there on the mountain where Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 20,000, down to the valley of this violent storm where they're there without Jesus on the on the sea. Now, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, you'll remember that Jesus tested Philip, and then John adds, for Jesus knew what he was intending to do. He always does, by the way. Nothing takes him by surprise. He always knows what he's intending to do. And I think he knew what he was intending to do when he sent these disciples out on the lake. He knew the storm would come. He knew that he would walk to them on the storm and uh, calm their fears and give them greater understanding of who he is. Mark chapter uh, 6, the report of this story in Mark, 
Mark says that when he was up on the mountain praying, Jesus saw the disciples straining against the oar. Now, it had to be a supernatural scene because they were three or four miles away and it was dark. You know, you can't see someone three or four miles away in the dark. So it was an omniscience on Jesus' part that saw them. Also, have you ever thought about how do you find them on the lake? I mean, you know, it's a big lake. And they could be anywhere, and he walks right to them. It's because he is God. He is omniscient. He knew where they were. And so um, the disciples had to learn that even though they didn't know it, Jesus was praying for them in their trial. He saw them in their trial. And at the right time, he came to them in their trial. And... uh All of that is God's providence. God's providence means that there is nothing in our lives, major or minor, that escapes the Lord's notice. It's all there for His purpose and from His hand and because of His love. And the fact is, Jesus is not asleep in heaven. He knows every circumstance in your life right now. says He knows every hair on our head, has them numbered. And He is praying for you and me. What a great comfort. The Lord is in heaven interceding on our behalf. And we may be down here struggling against the storm, but we can know in his perfect time, he'll come. He'll come. Storms don't stop him. And he will be glorified in us, even when we can't figure out why we're in the storm. So, in our trials, we grow to know and trust Jesus' person, his purpose, his providence. And then fourthly, we grow to know and trust Jesus' power in the trials that he puts us through. Now, the disciples had just seen Jesus create bread and fish. Five loaves, two fish, feeds a multitude by that. Now they see him as Lord over his creation as he breaks all the laws of nature and walks on on the water. And I think one of the lessons in this is Even if you're in a storm, the storm can't stop Jesus from getting to you at the time he intends to get to you. He will come. And yet, I need to say this about the power of Jesus to come to us in a storm. It's not always his will to deliver us from the storm. There's a false teaching right now that says, you know, it's God's will for you to be wealthy and to have healing in every situation. That is blatantly anti-biblical. I mean, consider John the Baptist. Jesus said he's the greatest man who's ever lived. And what happened to him? A king gets drunk at a party, sees a young girl dance, he lusts after her, gives her her request, and off comes John's head. Or Jesus himself. He could have called 12 legions of angels and delivered himself from the cross He didn't do it. He went to the cross. Or you read in the book of Acts, Peter's in prison. The church is praying. God invents the first automatic door. It opens to the prison. Peter walks out the automatic open door. The door shuts after him. And Peter is a free man. But read the fine print of that chapter. Herod chopped off James's head. James, the brother of John. And if you were John... And knowing Peter, being kind of the loudmouth that he is all the time, 
I think you could have reasonably thought, Lord, why? Why did you take my good brother and leave me with this guy? You know, Peter to deal with. The Bible never tells us why. It just presents them both. James died. Peter didn't. And uh, you read the same thing in the book of Hebrews, that great faith chapter 11. And you start there about verse 33, and it says, By faith they conquered kingdoms. They, they resisted the power of the sword. They shut the mouths of lions. You know, and you're going, yay, yay, yay. And right in the middle of that whole thing, it says, uh, And some were put to death with the sword, and sawn in two, and they dwelled in caves, and ran around in sheepskins and goatskins, men of whom the world is not worthy. So all of them, by faith, some were delivered, some were martyred. And all of the disciples, except John, were martyred as far as we know. So whether it's God's will to take us to glory through death or to show us His glory through a miraculous deliverance of some kind is not really in our power to know, but we can trust, Lord, if, if you will, this storm is not too great for you. You can come to me right now. And you can meet my need. And we should trust him for that. And then finally, we grow to know and trust not only Jesus' person and his purpose and his providence and his power, but also his presence in the trials that he puts us through. And I think that's one of the main lessons John wants us to learn in his abbreviated version of this because he reports in verse 21, that as soon as they were willing to receive Jesus into the boat, first they weren't willing because they were afraid, but as soon as they took him into the boat, the boat was to the place immediately where they were going. Now, some reputable Bible scholars say that was another miracle, and it may well be, certainly not without the realm of possibility with Jesus. Uh, other equally reputable conservative evangelical scholars say no, all John is saying is, as soon as Jesus was in the boat, the storm stilled, and they quickly got to their destination. But uh, we don't know which. But either way, when Jesus was with them, their, their fears were calm. That's the point. Jesus says to them, verse 20, It is I, do not be afraid. And when Jesus reveals his presence to you in the middle of a trial, the fear is gone. I mean, what's there to fear if Jesus is with me? It is I, in Greek, is literally ego I me, I am. And uh, a number of scholars will say, well, that's the only way you can say it is I in Greek, and that may well be true. Uh, yet some other scholars, and I think they may be onto something here, point out that... Um, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3, and Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? The Lord said, Say, I am sent you. I am who I am. And John, writing so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, may want us to see a hint, at least, of his claim to deity in his saying, I am, do not be afraid. It's very obvious when we'll get to chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus there tells the Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. Same phrase, ego I mean. And there clearly he's saying, I am 
the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But when the Lord gave the Great Commission, which, by the way, was a call to great suffering, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone, there have been a lot of martyrs who died doing that. He gave this wonderful promise, Matthew 28, 20. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. David Livingston, the great pioneer missionary to Africa in the 19th century, that was his verse. He uh, commented and said, On those words, on those words, I am with you always, I staked everything, and they never failed. It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor, and so there's an end of it. Livingston trusted in God. He was mauled by a lion. He had all kinds of other harrowing things. I encourage you to read his story sometime. But he trusted in, I am with you always. So, let me come back to the original question here as we wrap it up. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it so that he'll make you happy? Give you all your wishes? Or do you follow him because he's the sovereign Lord? of all creation, God in human flesh who demands your submission even if it means I get hung or lose my head, literally, in persecution and martyrdom. There's another underlying current in this story that I want to close with, and that is the abundant patience and grace of our Lord when we don't get it. I'm so glad for that. It's so encouraging to know. The disciples were slow learners. Any of you identify with that? They were slow learners. They just didn't get it on many, many occasions. Uh, you know, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and Mark tells us in his gospel right after that, they, they didn't get it. And later, there's a crowd of 4,000. You would think the disciples would go, wait a minute, 4,000 is less than 5,000. You fed 5,000. You can feed 4,000. They don't get it. Where are we going to find food for all this multitude? I don't know. You know, they don't get it. And yet all through the Gospels, you just see Jesus' grace, his patience in dealing with them. And I'm so thankful that even though I'm slow to learn, even though sometimes when things don't go as I expected or hoped, I, I get frustrated and I complain and I grumble that he's gracious and patient with me and with you. But even when things don't go as you expected or things don't go as you hoped, the point of this story is this. You can know that Jesus is Lord. You can know that Jesus is orchestrating all things for your good. And through the trials, you can grow to know his person better. You can grow to know his purpose better. You can grow to know his providence better. You'll grow to know his power better. And you'll grow to know his presence in a way you never would have without the trial. And later, you'll look back and you'll say, you know, that storm was worth it because I never would have seen Jesus walking on the water. I hadn't been in the storm. Dear Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters <clears throat> who are here and <clears throat> who are in the storm. And it's not easy. 
and it can be discouraging and confusing and exhausting and just overwhelming. Thank you, Lord, though, that you're in charge of all of our storms and that in the right time you will appear and come to us, even if it's in death, that we will be with you there and we will know you and your power. Lord, you don't forsake those who trust you. Thank you for that promise. And I pray you would encourage my brothers and sisters who are struggling in a storm right now. And Lord, there's probably someone here who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord. Maybe they're trying to use you, but they've never submitted to you. And I pray that you would right that situation and bring their heart into submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they would trust in you to forgive all their sins, and that they would submit their entire life to you as the rightful Lord over their lives. And we'll give you the glory as you work with us. Thank you again for your grace and your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.